0: And
1: three,
2: two,
0: one. <laughs> <Dope> theme. <laughs> Welcome to Objection to the Rules. It is May... 24th. 24th is yes. may the 22nd today we're doing this ahead of time we have another we have a another great show uh this is gonna be the first time that we're all recording together in about a month and a half or so we have everyone with us can we do some rounds
3: yeah uh i'm emily here in my own apartment <laughs> i'm Teresa. i am
4: somewhere in brooklyn <laughs>
2: This is Jasmine. I'm also in Brooklyn in my apartment with my cat. Yay! Dre! Dre! Little (laughs) Dre. Not so little Dre anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Uh, All right. So.
3: And then who are you?
0: I'm Matthew. There you go. Matthew Schneeman. There you go. In Brooklyn as well. (laughs) Uh, We got our local, national, and world. The whole buffet of news, all of it interesting, some of it terrifying. But, but over the, the review of when I was looking at, the, the stories we're going to do, there's some pretty interesting stuff going on. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited.
3: Yeah, me too. I'm happy to be back with you guys. I miss Starcom. Yeah. Combat yeah it's kind of it's strange it's, I I got so used to doing the piecemeal storytelling that it's like I forgot how to do this conversational thing <laughs> I'm so used to trying to make like having to force my stories to sound conversational and now maybe it will maybe not I don't know
2: yeah I, well, yeah, I miss talking too
3: yeah it's
2: not the same
3: no it's different yes exactly okay all right guys
0: should we jump straight into it or now now we can lean on this nice pillowy conversational thing instead of (laughs) being having all these declarations and full sentences
3: it's wild wild. but yeah i think i think it's time to jump into a story
0: okay cool so yeah wonderful emily let's start us off with the local story about zip codes
3: sort yeah sorta uh Uh, Yeah, so this story comes from a May 18th article on thecity.nyc titled Uh, First Tally of Virus Death Toll by Neighborhood Shows city Split and Suffering. It was written by a bunch of different people. Um, Yoav Gonin, Christine Chung, Rachel Holliday, and Clifford Michel, with additional reporting by Claudia Irizaria Ponte. Uh, Okay, so... Last week, the Department of Health released statistics about those who have tested positive for COVID-19 in New York City. And all of that data is available to see on nyc.gov, on the um, health department website specifically. Uh, And you should definitely check it out because it's really interesting. So um, the statistics are updated daily. So as of May 21st, um, there have been 192,840 cases of coronavirus. Uh, 50,770 of which have been hospitalized, uh, and there have been 16,232 confirmed deaths and an additional 4,771 probable deaths uh, for which there isn't an actual positive lab test. So, um, yeah, there's some really interesting stuff on that website. Um, For example, I learned that um, the following, so the website also updates the number of deaths in NYC as reported by New York State, which is almost one thousand less than the number um, for, that reported by New York City, and there's like that's due to like quote data collection differences, um, which was pretty wild. And I don't know what that says about the situation, but it is really interesting that the state and the city are reporting like such different numbers. It's not like five people difference; it's like a thousand people different. Um, okay, but the story I have for you right now is something different than all of that. Um, but it is based on those statistics, so. The city took uh, the city.nyc took a look at those statistics and found that like with so many other things, uh, zip code is an indicator of how likely it may be for a person to catch COVID-19 and also to die from it. According to the article, quote, the zip code dominated by the uh, start city housing development in Brooklyn suffered the worst losses in the city compared to its population, losing 76 residents, equivalent to 612 deaths per 100,000 who live there. Uh, Meanwhile, Southern Battery Park City and the neighboring slice of Manhattan's financial district were the only two zip codes in the five boroughs to log zero fatalities, which is crazy. Um, The article goes on to say that, quote, in Queens, COVID-19 exacted an especially heavy toll on the Rockaway Peninsula, uh, where uh, far Rockaway, um, Arvern and Rockaway Park recorded a combined 435 confirmed deaths to date. City Council member Donovan Richards broke down in tears upon hearing the death rate for these portions of his district, which each had at least 340 deaths per 100,000 people, nearly twice the citywide average of 175. He described the Rockaway Peninsula as a close-knit community with a high concentration of public uh, public houses and nursing homes, but with just one hospital and until recently little to no testing capability for COVID-19, end quote. Uh, And finally, one more long quote, because this article just had a lot of like really good details. Um, One last one to round the story out. Uh, Quote, local council member Francisco Moya said the new numbers underscore the city's deep racial and socioeconomic disparities and indicate the city government has done too little too late to safeguard communities. Once again, the very poor, the undocumented, they're the ones who are that are going to suffer from this. He added "As someone born and raised in this community it makes you want to cry when you see these numbers. My people are dying and no one cares. Health officials said the new data solidifies prior evidence of racial and ethnic disparities in the virus's impact with black and Latino New Yorkers dying at roughly twice the rate of white New Yorkers when adjusted for age "End quote. Um, yeah. So that's a lot. That's a lot to take in. Um, and yeah. So there at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about um, how it was, you know, quote, the great equalizer. But now that's clearly being shown not to be the case at all. It's, it's just further entrenching existing disparities um, on groups of people. And the Daily Podcast actually had a great episode that talked about that the other day, too. Um, but how are you guys feeling hearing all these statistics? I'm not surprised.
4: Um, obviously, these are the communities where You know, I live in these communities. I have lived in various of them. Um, The overall health um, advantages of these community are evident in the businesses that are open to them um, and the lack of medical facilities that are around. I think I've seen a lot of urgent care facilities pop up in the next few years or the past few years, but obviously those costs associated with those urgent cares, a lot of times are not covered with the insurance benefits that people have in these neighborhoods. So even if they go there, they come back with this huge bill that they can't afford anyway. So it's almost like they just avoid going to the hospital at any means. And a lot of people don't know that they have preexisting conditions because of things like that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge thing in general is all this talk about preexisting conditions and people making a lot of assumptions, but yeah, a lot of people don't know they have a preexisting condition before it's too late but that's i guess a separate (laughs) separate thing
5: yeah right
2: and there's i agree with what Teresa is saying like i remember they had the map and you could put in your zip code and mine was one of the darker colors Mm -hmm. um like i live in a mostly i would say there's a lot of um, brown immigrants and black people in my area and the other part of it too is there's a lot of people who work jobs where you're automatically more at risk because you're a frontline worker, you're a clerk, you're someone who's a nurse's aide, and you have to travel sometimes to get back to your home where you probably live with your family, as opposed to, you know, people that they have a job where they don't have to leave the house, you know, like who's more likely to be exposed and then to then go home and have to take care of people that are then exposed and get sick. You know, like, those things are also often along, like, racial lines, too. Like, race and class. But we know that those things are very linked in this country.
0: Mm -hmm. Hmm. The the woman that was on that episode...
3: um, Yeah, I was surprised, I think, most to hear that there were any zip codes that had no fatalities. I think just, yeah... I um, which I find like fascinating, like you know, like as upsetting as the statistics I read off were, they didn't surprise me because I know the reality how how the world works. Often, um, I'm aware of it, but yeah, I looked up the. Um, I mean, I use Wikipedia, so we can all take it with a grain of salt. But according to Wikipedia, I looked up the zip codes that had zero fatalities with the financial district in Battery Park City. And like, you know, that average median income for that area is like $140,000 a year. And the population is like, you know, I think it was like vast majority, like majority white and Asian, and then a much smaller percentage were other people of color, um, which is interesting. And... Um, you know, once again, just like with, you know, your zip code the term is, goes on to be an indicator of, you know, of things like uh potential earning value in your life and, you know, your education, what your, your, how, you know, stuff like that continues to compound. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. One I'll say that I wasn't, I wasn't surprised that there were areas with no fatalities, especially in Manhattan because so much of those Sections of the city are commercial as opposed to residential so yeah. I think it 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 kind of makes like there are large chunks of the city where yeah it's a zip code but it's like a bunch of businesses that might not be open as opposed to a zip code where the majority of that right that, that space is
3: yeah that's
2: buy homes right that no, part in, is also the added fact of, of the people who do live there, who is it? You know, like if right. you're a person, you don't necessarily have to get up and go somewhere, but all the people that were at the Yeah.
3: I mean, that's a good point. I think um, that's a very good point about just majority of people who space occupied by people who work versus live there. I will say I, the there are like tens of thousands of people that live in those neighborhoods. It is it is not like other neighborhoods that are majority residential, um, which is a good point. But there are there is you know, there are people that live there. And I think an additional factor might be um, a, it's a separate article that I or separate story. People are talking about about how Manhattan kind of cleared out. When all of this started, like people who had the resources and the ability to leave did. And I'm guessing that's probably a related factor as well. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that map looks similar. Like the places. Right. I think the Times had a map of the places that cleared out. Mm-hmm. And it, if you were to overlay it with the same map that shows you the infections, it's, it has a lot in common.
3: Mm-hmm. Which is really interesting. And... Yeah. yeah.
4: Hmm. be interesting to see what happens when people return mm-hmm. they weekend and I'm assuming that some people will start coming back after the holiday um, as we head into summer or not
3: yeah I don't know I, um, I'm guessing people are going to start coming back once when the city starts moving into like phase one of reopening but you know it's all we have no idea yeah all the normal the norms are out the window.
0: Okay, let's air a feature on the internet. Uh it's about NYC Mesh, which is like this different way of getting the internet to people. Uh they're essentially building their own networks of the internet and connecting it directly to where all the internet companies connect to. Do we have any does anyone here have any initial feelings about the internet? Love it, hate it. Any stories about um dealing with isps well especially in this uh remote
4: world that we're in what a great time to strike the market right
3: mm-hmm. yeah
4: you think it'll be interesting to see how as an alternative if i understand what it is um it works well in all of these platforms we're so used to
0: yeah um and it's the thing is that's weird is it's it's the same internet like so if they use Zoom or whatever, they're connected to the same thing. They just haven't gone through Spectrum first. It's pretty weird.
4: Mm-hmm. So indie internet?
0: <laughs> indie internet?
3: Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh um, my god.
2: <laughs> well, yeah. is the goal is the goal kind of like, you know, cuz one of the issues is, you know, Not everyone has access now, like either they can't afford it or they might be of a generation where they never got comfortable. So I think having more options that are more accessible is definitely important, especially for people that all of a sudden now, like they have to homeschool their kids or do stuff online with their kids for school, but they don't really, they can't go to the library and use that internet now. Hmm. Yeah, yeah
0: and they're this isn't in the piece but they're teaming up with Nycha uh to bring internet to a bunch of areas that have uh low or no broadband access which apparently is 27% of uh New Yorkers. Wow. But the benefit is when you stick an antenna on top of like a big tall like public housing building then their network gets expanded and they can reach further. So it's this beautiful kind of um uh, symbiotic relationship, where actually by helping people, it makes their network uh, even stronger.
3: That's really interesting. Mm. Yeah,
0: it's because like it's it's just like if if my <laughs> computer was connected to yours, unless you like agree to just start like emailing people shit about me, <laughs> there's no company that's collecting it and selling it.
3: Yeah, uh, I'm going to come in with my. Oh. <laughs> that all sounds great. I will say that the internet can, is both this kind of magical thing and also very it can be a very scary, dangerous place too in terms of radicalizing groups of people um, around the world and it's it's a weird it's a weird thing cuz there's you want the freedom of information and there's places where people can't get access to information they need around the world and then there's also just a lot of lies and bullshit on the internet that is making a lot of people um, do bad things uh, everywhere. And yeah, it is, it's scary and um, it is interesting to add this element of almost less oversight to that but like also like also the internet is also a place that is overly regulated in other ways too it's kind of wild it's it's a it's a whole hmm. dichotomy going on
0: i'm I'm glad you said that because the the big thing i learned from from talking to these people is that and this is pretty pie in the sky type things but uh donuts the guy i was talking to is, is talking about how the internet is all monetized right mm-hmm. uh websites social media things and all of that profit model does is it really makes things like uh angry antagonistic uh news reports and posts uh there there's an incentive to to make those so all of the mm. radicalizing all of your conspiracy theories like just people like shit posting and all of that stuff theoretically if people were, had community internet where it was uh, it wasn't uh, controlled or the motive wasn't just to like get clicks and whatnot, then you would have less than that. But that's um that's much further down the line. But it's, it's the dream that I hope happens.
3: Wow. Wow. Very cool. Cool. Well, let's go for it. Let's All do right. it.
0: Here's a feature on NYC Mesh. Most of us don't understand how the internet works, but we do know we hate internet service providers. Service is still horrible.
2: Yeah. Have you ever tried complaining to get
0: a Yeah, yeah, they, they'll give you credit for your bill, but that still doesn't make up for the horrible internet you have. Horrible internet is horrible. No, it's all complaints here. Uh, <laughs> no, it's just like
4: super frustrating. Right? I'm working from home now. For 15 straight days, I didn't have internet.
0: Now, we all use it, the Internet, but not many of us understand it. Even hosts of Internet radio shows like me or Emily, my co-host on Objection to the Rule, this very show. (laughs) Do you
3: know how the Internet works? (laughs) Wow. Okay, I'm trying to. So I, I don't um i actually i was thinking about that earlier today though how like we live in a world where like a page wasn't loading and i had this moment of just like we just live in a world where that even means anything (laughs) which is kind of wild kind of wild
0: i think it's terrifying that i don't know how any of the things my life depends on work anyway the internet is complicated but not in the ways that you may presume the basic structure of the internet is incredibly simple all it is is a computer connected to another computer. And companies evolved to be those connections. They're ISPs, Internet Service Providers, Spectrum, Verizon. But the oligarchy of Optimum and Time Warner Cable wasn't
5: inevitable.
0: A band of engineers, tech wizards, and community-minded DIYers offer an alternative.
5: The mesh started, I think, with just an antenna in his window next to an East Village bar that they also put an antenna on. And, like, that was the first New York City Mesh connection.
0: That's Donuts. We'll talk about his name in a moment. They're an organizer with NYC Mesh. NYC Mesh installs antennas on the tops of buildings in New York City that connect people, which connects people to other people, which connects them to the Internet. The installation costs from $160 to $290. After that, it's monthly donations, suggestions from $20 to $50. This all sounds very transactional, like a normal business, but NYC Mesh is something a bit more than that, as you'll come to learn. Hi, how are you doing?
5: Good, how are you?
0: Pretty good. Um, do you go by Donuts? Is that a, uh, a nickname?
5: <laughs> yeah, that's my nickname. Uh, my, my given name's Michael. <laughs>
0: Uh, I just was uh, looking into this author who I might work with whose name is Cupcake Brown. And that is a very cool story, but we don't have time for it. I said the Internet is fundamentally a simple idea. Do you have a good way of explaining in really simple terms how the Internet works? (laughs) I asked him what happens when we go online.
5: So when you type in coolstuff.com, it goes to your home router, which is then connected to some local ISP. And from there, it travels through whatever conduits that are laid just below the city street. I had a or, hard time um, with this
0: explanation, even though it's a simplified one. So I asked Donuts to explain it to me, like if the Internet was the postal service, mailing a letter from New York to San Francisco.
5: Post is a great analogy. Right, so um, when you go to coolstuff.com, like you're you're mailing a letter to some business out in some other city. You put that letter in your mailbox and that's like sending that request through your router. Mailman comes to pick it up and they're like the ISP and they bring it back to the distribution center in the city, which is like the internet hotel. And then from the mail distribution center in New York to the mail distribution center in San Francisco, right? They either ship it uh, by truck or by plane, and it, it goes all that distance. It arrives at the distribution center in San Francisco. Then the mail line takes it from the distribution center there to your mailbox, and then you pick it up through your mailbox.
0: Donuts, you did a good job, but I'm going to do it again very slowly for people like me. So if you write a letter, it goes like this, mailbox, mail carrier, takes it to the post office, then to another city's post office, mail carrier, then to another mailbox. That's how you move one letter across the country. I actually have no idea if that's how the post office works, but it's an analogy, so we'll keep going with it. But for websites, it goes like this. You type coolstuff.com into your computer, it goes to a router, Then it goes to Verizon or Spectrum or whatever. Then it goes to an internet hotel. An internet hotel is also known as an IXP, Internet Exchange Point, and it's where a whole bunch of fiber optic cables are located. So ISPs, like Verizon, can hook up to them and connect to the rest of the world. Then it goes to another city's internet hotel, Verizon, a router, and then another computer. Then it goes backwards and brings the information back to you. It does that in a moment. Pretty cool.
1: So it's kind
5: of like these layers from like as local as you can get, um, you know, my laptop to my router to my router to the hotel, and then hotel to hotel and then.
0: Here's where the analogy breaks down. NYC, Mesh and others around the world have realized that we don't need the post office. In real life we do, but in this analogy we don't actually need the post office.
5: Yeah, so it's it's that that extra step of where we're like, you know, we don't really need the mail carrier to come by to pick up our mail, we can just drop it off at the main station. And then uh, we also realized that like we could just drop it off in our friend's mailbox and we don't have to make the round trip to the to the main station. That's another key point about the mesh is that we can communicate to each other directly.
0: NYC Mesh is not an ISP, but they do the same thing an ISP does. But one big difference is that they're a community. You could be part of it. Everything is open. They have an open Slack channel. They have meetings that everyone is free to go to. I went to one. When I first learned about you all at NYC Mesh, it seemed really cool and kind of hip and almost like futuristic, like steampunk or something, kind of anarchistic Build in your own internet. It seemed very cool. And I was getting really excited. And at the meeting, I realized that all of the planning and so much of the work is like really rather boring, <laughs>
5: right? Like it's. <laughs> you know what's, yeah. What can be the problem? And I'm also unsure about is that deadline, um, um, filing deadline, or is it a. Yeah, I think it's from uh, filing. A deadline of when you actually are granting um, status. You mean the one and a half years? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That there's a, there's a lot of project planning. There's a lot of details and a lot of grunt work involved in creating and growing and maintaining this network.
0: It can be pretty dry stuff. For other examples, I turned to Emily, our co-host on this show, to see if she had that same uh, radical boredom. <laughs>
3: I was part of like a a nonprofit that um, worked with. Uh, menstruators on getting them and teaching them how to use reusable menstrual products and kind of telling them why it was important to know about them and how like essentially um, you know the reason that we have all these products that are disposable and you know are probably not very healthy for you to use is because it's like all these CEOs that run these companies were men when all these things were invented and all that sort of stuff so like it was like pretty like radical in that sense but it's also like the mechanics of it was just like having seminars and very science-based but even of of itself I guess that sounds pretty interesting (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) thank you Emily
0: very happy that you aren't bored when you are doing good Okay, back to the story. I had thought NYC Mesh was just about getting the 27% of New Yorkers without broadband access, good broadband access. But Donut says it's more than just getting the internet. It's about changing it, too.
5: Yeah, and there's that, that aspect of like intentionality, too, where we're creating this service as an active community rather than trying to monetize right? A lot of these social media sites, like their their main focus isn't to connect people. It isn't to foster deliberate discourse or to try to organize local politics or to organize families and communities and friends, but their main motive is profit. And because of that, they, the tools that they create are geared towards getting as much traffic, getting as much eyeballs on ads, getting as much controversy to stir up the discourse, so more people are drawn to the conversation so that they can serve ads and make money. Whereas a community like this, right, our intention is to create tools that first encourage some sort of community building, either encourage, like, whatever commerce already exists in between people and communities, encourage um, any sort of social activities or political activities, right? Our first motivation is to the community, And there's a lot of really interesting analysis around, like, if you build a tool like a tweet or if you build something like a Facebook timeline, like the type of behavior that you're encouraging isn't necessarily the most constructive or positive behavior.
0: And I am a fan of positive behavior. I thought the mesh was to expand the Internet, but it could fix it, too. We're all familiar with the bad practices of the Internet, You know, the bias towards negative news, how people used addiction science to design Facebook's notifications, endless scrolling, all of that. But there's even more.
5: Yeah, and there's another aspect, too, of marginalization of communities, right? When you are making money off of advertisements, you're beholden to your advertisers to make sure that the content that they place their ads next to are wholesome and palatable, I see queer content being taken down left and right on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, because of their policy guidelines, not because it's lewd or because it's immoral or whatever, it's because advertisers set an expectation of what sort of content can be served next to their ads.
0: One technique is called shadow bans. It's a form of soft censorship that removes hashtags from images. The vague term sexually suggestive takes down plenty of queer content. An article in The Guardian writes, When images of fully clothed plus sized or black women are removed for being inappropriate, the platform's AI learns to adopt biases that reinforce misogyny and racism. But human content moderation has its flaws too. The documentary The Cleaners shows how Facebook's content moderation has been outsourced to places like the Philippines where people work very long hours subjected to horrific content and also have to make subjective decisions about what aligns with community guidelines and standards for communities literally on the other side of the world. So it seems like we have a problem. Luckily... It's easier to fix a problem if the solution saves money and works better. A mesh network has more redundancies than an ISP, and it costs less, mostly because the spirit is in community building and not profit. But it'll take time. If ISPs like Spectrum, Verizon, yada yada, went away tomorrow, we wouldn't have the internet. In many ways, they are the Internet. They're the connections. I made fun of NYC Mesh. I made fun of the meetings by calling it boring. Have we
3: done, like, the numbers on what we... Like, what the benefit of this kind of, like... And it is boring.
0: But once I realized that many of the 20 or so people on that call... We're using a network that they themselves built. It stopped being so humdrum. The show is it has elements that are fairly uh, tedious and monotonous. So, like every every week you send down an email saying six days till the next
3: show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, there's boring stuff. Like, I guess, like the organizational structure, right? Being like, this is the to-do list today and send this email.
0: The idea of community has changed. You can be a Luddite and think that. The internet is ruining everything just because the internet is ruining everything. Or you can embrace it as the, the world we live in. You can go to nycmesh.net for more information, find their Slack channel, and even attend their next meeting.
5: Awesome. All right. See you all.
2: Yeah, it's really, it really good to see you guys. Thanks, guys. See you next
0: time. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. And wow. we're back. Let's take a break. Thank you, Teresa. Teresa, can you uh, send us out on a uh, a music break?
4: Absolutely. So this week, I'm just going to pay you a classic throwback from The Roots, one of my favorite bands. This song is called "The Next Movement." Back <laughs> with us and be right back.
1: And yes, y'all, you and I are tuned to the sound of the legendary foundation. Stop watching when it's set in emotion. It's the next movement. You listen and stop watching when it's set in emotion. It's the next moment. We got the hot <laughs> uh-huh music, the hot music, the hot uh-huh music, the hot uh-huh music, the hot music. This is how we usually start Once again it's the thought The Dalai Lama of the mic The Prime Minister thought This directed to whoever in it rains Yo the whole state of things in the world about to change Black rain falling from the sky Looks strange The ghetto was red hot We stepping off lane Yo it's inflation on the price for fame And it was all the same But then the antidote came The black thought in the syllabus out the fifth This heavyweight rap shit I'm about to lift like A father lift up to sunlight I'm plugging the mic Draw like a gunfight I never use a cordless or stand apartless Sipping chlorophyll out of L silver gauntlets I'm like a faucet, but I'm object There ain't no way to cut this tap You got to get wet Your head's is and I ain't said shit yet The roots prove the next move, man And yes, y'all You and I tuned to the sound Of the legendary Foundation Check it out, come uh. Yeah, you gonna pay you listen and stop what you're doing, it's setting in motion. It's the next movement, you listen and stop what you're doing, it's setting in motion, it's the butter we got that Word up the formation of words to fit. That's what I usually disturb you with. A lot of rappers never heard of this, or know half the time it is. You got the LFF, what could you accomplish? Rubber they sky in your name, or you anonymous? You be speechless with and sinuses. The roots for your monocyst through your monitors. I tilt my crown, dimple down a dime kiss. You need the buy. Right CD and stop finalist like a and at conference, the listen close to my poetry. examine
0: this like an analyst to see if you can handle it. national segment. you got, got, Uh, You you're bringing us a story about journalists getting laid off.
2: Yeah, it's about job cuts. So as most of us know, unfortunately, um, we're seeing an unprecedented number of people filing for unemployment these days due to the pandemic. And the article that I'm sharing with you today is from The Washington Post. It's by I don't know how to pronounce this person's name, so I will spell it out. E-L-A-H-E, last name I-Z-A-D-I. So I think it's Ela Izadi. Um, And they wrote about cuts at Vice, Quartz, and BuzzFeed. So this last week, this article is from the 19th. Last week, Vice Media laid off 155 people, Quartz laid off 80, and Condé Nast cut 100 jobs, and that's just to name a few. So we're all aware that a lot of local papers and smaller news organizations, they've been struggling for years as more and more people get their news from digital publications. But this latest round of layoffs show that even tech savvy and, digi- and digital organizations are having to cut staff. Um, Gabriel Kahn, who's a professor at the University of Southern California, At the School for Communication and Journalism says the pain is across the board. This isn't just a question of nimble digital companies able to survive and lumbering legacy ones perishing. The marketplace is too brutal the way it's configured right now. So one huge part of the problem, and I know this has also come up with um, radio and podcasting, One of the biggest issues is the the fact that even though more people are reading the news than ever because of the pandemic, there's way less money coming in in the form of advertising revenue compared to what was coming in pre-COVID. The New York Times estimates that around 36,000 media employees have been furloughed, had their pay reduced, or have been laid off. Emily Bell is the director at the Tow Center for Jur- Digital Journalism at Columbia. And she says that the current situation is accelerating a phenomenon that's been happening for years. Quote, even though theoretically we understood it's happening, we're actually starting to feel it. While newer organizations like BuzzFeed had already had rounds of layoffs prior to the pandemic, In spite of them appealing to younger, more digitally savvy audiences, even more established companies are feeling the pain right now. A newly laid off Condé Nast employee had taken the job at Condé Nast over other offers because, quote, I thought it'd be the most stable and I was really looking forward to being somewhere where I could grow as a person in media. you think Condé Nast is such a big company that let's say something terrible happens the things they can cut from are the crazy cafeteria in the world trade center or anna went to second house budget or the weird holiday party oh, they shit. said i never would think that the cuts would come from people doing reporting who are already not paid a lot so the article like goes into more detail and gives more examples but um I know on Twitter, like I've been seeing a lot of people like every day there's like a new group of people saying, you know, me and 68 other people, me and another big number of colleagues have been laid off. And um, one of the things that's not mentioned explicitly in this article is there's a lot of situations where there might be a, a beat or like a department that focuses on particular issues that's a little bit newer And those are the people that get cut off first. So I've seen some writers who, you know, they were the last trans person, the last openly trans person that was working at their company. And now there's no one reporting on those issues who's actually of that experience, just to give one example. So, yes, it's scary, like how in a time when you need more people who are professionals, who are doing the work of helping people to interpret what's going on around them. You need that more than ever, but there's fewer and fewer people being paid to do it and being given the resources to do it now. So, you know, I'm not a journalist myself, but it's very, it's disheartening and it's scary. Cause as Emily mentioned earlier, like the internet is a, it can be a wonderful thing, but there's also so much disinformation and misinformation and, The more you squeeze out you know professionals trying to prevent that the harder it is to you know get a control over what types of lies that get spread unchecked.
0: Mm, Wonderful. What a good story. Um, I I have a question for everyone that might kind of tell the give weight to the value of uh, uh, journalism. How good? Or how much better do you think this show would be if we got paid to oh. do like proper research?
3: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there, there's uh, that's a weird question, and like ties in a lot of things. Like, not uh, Radio for Brooklyn is like a nonprofit, so we don't have to uh answer to a lot of like other interested parties, which I think goes a long way. Like we kind of have free reign to do what we want to uh because we don't get paid. So uh I think there's also benefits to that. Like like just like you said, monetizing the internet is kind of what causes all this shit. Hmm. So <laughs> I don't really necessarily think that's a fair question. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. I think love the authenticity
4: that we all care so much about, you know, bringing these stories to light and having dialogue with real people. It kind of pays for itself. Is that the humanitarian in me? I love that, Teresa. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think that's probably... (laughs) I, I think it's a good point that, you know, because there's also been plenty of scandals that you, just because a place is a newspaper or an organization where people are being paid, a lot of times you're beholden to your boss wanting you to put a certain spin on certain issues that doesn't really exist when you're doing it as a volunteer. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that what's happening with this is, yeah. you know, it's separate from us, but these, the thing is, like, if it's your livelihood, the stakes are so much higher for you and you're probably going to be a lot more committed to doing your absolute best because that's your bread and your butter. And it's something you were trained professionally to do. So them like these people are extremely important resources that the country needs and that the world needs more than ever. Mm -hmm. There's, now in a position where, you know, they have to try to figure out some other way to eat, and that's less time and less energy to be able to, you know, bring us the information that we need. You know, like I know we rely on the work that they do so that we can inform the people that listen to us.
3: Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. And a
4: lot and- of times people in those positions work their whole lives to get to that tier of their career where their work is being taken right. serious and spread across broad platforms.
3: Mm. Yeah, I oh, yeah, well I was going to say I was just going to say that mm-hmm. I think the story is really interesting because it it really um, it shows that, you know, journalism journalism is uh is another business. It's another industry where, like at the last example Jasmine gave at least, you know, there are people at the top that are, may or may not be taking pay cuts before they cut the people at the bottom that are actually doing the work. Um, mm. That's, you know, I think, I, I actually haven't heard a ton one way or the other of how much that's happening uh, around the country or around the world where, you know, like these CEOs that make, you know, six, seven figures, what they're doing with that much, like, you know, their income. Um but yeah, it's a business. Yeah. Okay, we got
0: ten minutes left and two and a half stories. Let's keep it mm. keep it rolling, uh, Teresa. We have uh, California. I would say this is good good news. This is a cool thing, but I, I don't actually know. Um, uh, please uh, deliver.
4: I think it's good. So I'll try to get through just the basics, so we can get to all our stories. So uh, the University of California has dropped the ACT and the SAT requirement for applicants. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I hated those tests back in the day. Um, But yeah, the story was drawn from USA Today. It was by Jessica Flores and a story from the LA Times from Teresa Watanabe. So the University of California region's Unanimously voted Thursday to suspend the SAT and ACT testing requirements through 2024 and eliminate them for California students by 2025. The action by the nation's premier public university system marks an important turning point in a long running debate over whether the standardized test system unfairly discriminates against disadvantaged students or provides a useful tool to evaluate college applicants. Last October, the Compton Unified School District, the Community Coalition, and other groups even went so far as to file a lawsuit against the UC system, claiming they were practicing discriminatory practices by preventing certain students from entering their schools and calling for the test to be dropped. So critics say that the SAT and the ACT are heavily influenced by race, income, and parental education levels. Questions on the exam's value in predicting college success, and they express concern about inadequate access to test prep. Those concerns have prompted more than a thousand colleges and universities to drop the testing requirement thus far. Yeah. So, under this new plan, standardized test results will be optional for applications for the next two years and then eliminated for California students in three or four years. So by fall of 2025, the UC system is aiming at having its own assessment. If none is developed by then, the university will drop the test score requirement entirely and then students in California will be evaluated by their high school grades and a dozen other factors, um, including that comprehensive review exam. So campus officials will be left with the task of figuring out how to apply the shifting admission requirements and evaluate tens of thousands of applicants without test scores. All application readers will will need training on how to avoid implicit bias against applicants who don't submit the scores in the future. Um, So in the LA Times article, they did say that UC experts will launch a feasible study this summer to identify a new test and to assess what the university expects students to master to demonstrate readiness Mm -hmm. for college. So Hmm. I think this is a great move um, on behalf of the university system. As a person who's worked in higher ed for my whole career, um, you can definitely see how the disadvantages work with students that don't have access to training for these tests. I remember when I took the GRE, um, the portion of the test that I did the best on was the writing, and that's the score that's not considered for admission. So it's awful. Yeah. yeah, I paid about seven hundred dollars for a testing service to study for about four months before I took the test. And at the time, I really did not have the money, but I didn't see how I was supposed to do this um, study by
3: myself.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Wow, that's wild. I think hmm. it is interesting that they need to replace. they they're planning on replacing it with a new test because it's you know I think it's really important that they're actually moving forward with like not just acknowledging that there's issues with these exams, but, you know, moving forward with action on that. But I think there's a lot of potential pitfalls that can come with the fact that they're replacing it with what is going to sounds like be another test. It's going to be interesting to see what it is. I think, yeah. yeah, Go for Jasmine.
2: Yeah. Is the test supposed to be like whether or not they can get into the school or is it an assessment that you would take to like figure out what your needs might be? You know what I'm saying? Like, cause I think there could be a place for, if you're coming to school, if you're coming from one school that has one set of resources or one background and then another kid is from another one and you're both in the same classroom, they might have, they have to do some kind of assessment to see like what things you need versus the other person but maybe yeah, think, they could not use it to kick people out, you know, or like keep people out. Mm.
4: Yeah. I think that that think tank that they're planning on doing this summer to kind of put the components of the test together, they're going to have to also look how um, education systems vary across the United States, because obviously right, uh, yeah. there's a lot of variation into different um, education systems, whether there's regions or not, um, how often the students are tested within their coursework and how far they're able to go in certain disciplines. They got a lot of work to do. I think
0: it, all this testing, the whole model is all based off of exclusivity and hierarchy because my, my cousin told me a joke once. It was like, what do you call the person who was like last in their class of medical school? You call them doctor mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's just... You make sure someone can do their job and they have qualifications, right? Like these tests are just about funneling people into uh, places to like uh, control power and exclusivity mm-hmm. and all these things. But I don't think we they've really ever been about performance because, you know, backwards, like, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, mm-hmm. we don't have much time left and I am thrilled to hear about the robotic Dogs, Mm -hmm. Uh, wait, the the robotic robots of Rwanda.
4: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this segment, I'm calling it the Jetsons of Rwanda, just because the Jetsons was one of my favorite cartoons when I was growing up.
0: Teresa, you got cartoons going on behind you, don't you?
4: (laughs) Hey, my dog likes to watch cartoons. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So this last piece um, came from two stories, one from MSN.com. The author is Hudson Kutessa and also from the telegraph.com UK, and the author is Will Brown. So Rwanda recently deployed five state-of-the-art humanoid robots to aid in its efforts against the COVID-19 pandemic. They were reportedly designed to limit the exposure of healthcare workers to the virus. The robots can perform several activities related to COVID-19 management, including mass screening, delivering food, and medication to patients' rooms and capturing data. They're also able to screen people to see if they're wearing a mask or not. And if not, they can warn people they need to wear one. Isn't this cool?
2: Um, It sounds like that Black Mirror episode, though. (laughs) (laughs) Right?
4: Um, But the robots were made by a company called Zorobots, which is a Belgian company that specializes in robotic solutions. Um, They were designed with various advanced features to support doctors and nurses, and they can be leveraged into screening sites throughout the country. They are a result of a joint effort with the Rwandan Ministry of ICT and Innovation and the United Nations Development Program. And the government launched the use of these robots just this past week uh, to reduce contact between medics and patients. Um, One really cool thing about this story, I just want to get to before we end, Um, it says that the robots have the capacity to screen between 50 to 150 people per minute, capture both video and audio data, and notify officers on duty about detected abnormalities for timely response and case management. Uh, uh, They were given Rwandan names and they come at a price tag of about $3,300 each.
0: Oh, that's not very much for a robot. What's going on here? Exactly.
4: I mean, I, I don't know. I think this should definitely be, there will be more news about this innovation across the world. Um, but it's really cool to see that this is happening. And I think that um, in Rwanda, they were able to put this research together because their cases are not as large as some places like ours. Um, but mm-hmm. I definitely think this is a story to keep watching to see how it would affect the world.
3: Mm. Wow. Amazing. That's amazing, Teresa. Matt, um, how much time we have left? Three minutes. Okay. OK, cool. I wasn't. OK, I have a good news story that I'm glad we're going to get a chance to go to. So um, so this comes from a New York Times article uh, last week by Brad Plumer. Um, and uh, essentially, in a, well, it's titled In a First, Renewable Energy is Poised to Eclipse Coal in the U.S. And I'll try and make this short and sweet. So, uh, quote, the United States is on track to produce more electricity this year from renewable power than from coal for the first time on record. Uh, new government projections show a fact that, quote, has profound implications in the fight against climate change. So, uh This is a milestone that comes in spite of, uh, quote, the Trump administration's three-year push to try to revive the ailing industry by weakening pollution rules on coal-burning power plants. Uh, Those efforts, however, fail to halt the powerful economic forces that have led electric utilities to retire hundreds of aging coal plants since 2010 and run the remaining plants less frequently. The cost of burning of building large wind farms has declined more than forty percent in that time, while solar costs have dropped more than eighty percent. Uh, end quote. Yeah, and the benefits of closing coal plants goes beyond the often nebulous specter of climate change. Uh, listeners may remember another good news story we did back in January on a study from UC San Diego that showed that decommissioning that the decommissioning of hundreds of coal fired power plants in the U.S. over. Uh, a rec- like a fairly recent time span um saved an estimated 26,610 lives and increased crop yields by 570 million bushels um so i do want to note uh make a note on some things because as with most things it's not like 100 percent all good so the con- the pandemic is at least part of the reason why this uh why some plants are shutting down <coughs> oh sorry and that is like <coughs> swallow an air bubble something weird. Um, And that is, of course, uh, it is complicated to look at the pandemic as um, like good news for any reason. Um, And, you know, there's also hundreds of coal miners getting laid off. Um, And while we can, you know, all hope that they find work in the renewable energy industry, it is, you know, it's not like an immediate one, too. And it is really painful for having so many people laid off. Um and then of course there's uh cheap natural gas is part of the reason for the shift from coal, but fracking that gets us the cheap natural gas is problematic for a host of reasons. Um mm. but coal totally sucks and overall I would call this good news. Yay. Yeah. That's
0: so great. Uh well wonderful stories today everyone. Uh this has been Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um Yeah, I, I can't I I haven't don't have any of the reads memorized. <laughs>
3: Well, t- uh, Teresa or Jasmine, you guys want to call it or take us out?
2: So you you want me to go for it? All right, here it mm-hmm. is. <laughs> yeah. This this is um Jasmine Smith, Emily, Matthew, Shaman, and Teresa. Have a good rest of your weekend. Stay inside if you can. Stay safe, and thank you for listening.
3: Bye. Bye. Do we want to? Does someone want to note we'll be back next week, one p.m find our stuff online. Do you want to say it, Teresa?
4: Sure. <laughs> we will be next next Sunday at one o'clock. You can check us out on the radio free Brooklyn app or the radio free Brooklyn website or anywhere where you can find iTunes podcasts. Uh, you can also check out our Facebook page for links to these stories and links to uh, previous recordings from old episodes.
0: Perfect.
3: Awesome. Yeah. All right. And Matt, that
2: yeah, you can piece that together. So it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs>